The Tom Woods Show, episode 1336. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, you may know about Contra Krugman, the podcast I do every week with Bob Murphy, but you may not know that there is now a book by the same name, Contra Krugman, subtitle, Smashing the Errors of America's Most Famous Keynesian. It is devastating, and it answers all the arguments you need answered at the water cooler. Check it out at ContraKrugmanBook.com. And I am the narrator of the audiobook edition, which you can get for free through the Audible offer at TomWoodsAudio.com. Remember, get more details at ContraKrugmanBook.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Very glad to have Josh Blackman on the show. He is the law professor whose exam questions historian Brian McClanahan and I had a lot of fun talking about in episode 1325. If you didn't listen to 1325, it's actually one of my favorite of the recent episodes. So Brian and I just had a great time. And Josh, I just thought, was a courageous, smart, interesting person just on the basis of what I had seen from his exam questions. And, of course, he was being uh, raked over the coals for them, so you know they must have been good. And it turns out he's just an all-around great guy. He got an amazing publication record for a guy as young as he is. He's written two books on Obamacare, one of them unprecedented, The Constitutional Challenge to Obamacare, and the other unraveled, Obamacare, Religious Liberty, and Executive Power. He's been selected by Forbes magazine for the 30 under 30 in law and policy. He's 34 now. And he is the founder and president of the Harlan Institute. And today I thought we would talk about uh, the current situation legally with regard to Obamacare, given U.S. District Court Judge Reed O'Connor's finding that the act is unconstitutional. So we're going to get into the details of that with one of the, frankly, one of the great experts on the subject anywhere in the country. Josh, welcome. Thank you so much, Tom. I'd like to start off asking you if you can explain just a few of the basic terms associated with Obamacare. I'm sure most people know what the individual mandate is, But still, let's talk about that. And then there are two other characteristic features of Obamacare that I'd like you to say something about, and those are guaranteed issue and community rating. Because if we are clear in our minds on what all these things mean, then it'll be easier to evaluate the claim that Obamacare stands or falls with the individual mandate. In other words, what's the relationship between the individual mandate and these other two features? The most popular feature of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, is what's known as community rating and guaranteed issue. Okay, what are guaranteed issue and community rating? These are regulations that tell insurance companies you must issue policy to people regardless of their health conditions, and you can't charge people more because they're sick. This is so-called pre-existing conditions protection. This is, without any question, the thing people love most about Obamacare. It's also the most expensive part of Obamacare. Because for most people who are healthy, insurance is a ripoff. You don't really use it and you pay lots of money. But for people who are quite sick, they require lots of care, medicine, surgery, et cetera. They're the ones who actually drive uh, a significant bills through the insurance companies. How did Obamacare try to deal with this, right? If we have to cover sick people, well, the idea is let's make healthy people buy into the system. This is what's known as the individual mandate. It's a mandate to purchase insurance unless you meet a few exemptions, which are very hard to meet. Um, so the AC said, if you are healthy, if you're sick, we don't care. We have to buy insurance. 
And if you don't buy insurance, you have to pay a penalty, a penalty. And the penalty started around $700 and it fluctuates based on your income. But the idea was that if you don't buy insurance, you have to pay this penalty. And that way there's still money coming in the healthcare system. All right, let's start then with uh, talking about, first of all, what the Supreme Court had to say about Obamacare, because a lot of that had to do with the individual mandate and whether that would be allowed. And it, it turns out that this wound up being another case of where the taxing power seems to allow for a wide latitude for the federal government to do all kinds of things if they can be described plausibly as a tax. Well, the, the important thing to remember is that in 2012, the Supreme Court upheld Obamacare, but it did so in a very particular manner. First, Chief Justice Roberts found that the individual mandate itself was unconstitutional, that Congress did not have the power to force someone to buy health insurance. That much is straightforward. But then he applied what he called a saving construction. What's a saving construction? It's a way that a court can read a law maybe a little bit differently in order to uphold it. And he said that he can read the law differently. How? The penalty that enforced the mandate only kicked in if you failed to buy insurance. Chief Justice Roberts found Oh, now that, I remember. Okay. Yeah, Chief Justice Roberts found that in many regards, the penalty looks like a tax. It's not a tax, but it resembles a tax. It raises revenue and it creates an incentive for people to become insured. So even though it wasn't actually enacted as a tax, the Chief Justice found that the law could be read as a tax. So therefore, the bottom line of Obamacare was that there actually was no mandate. There was merely a tax on going uninsured. Let me say that again, because it's a little bit, little bit obtuse. The court held that there was no actual command to buy insurance. Rather, the law could be read as a tax on going uninsured. And once Chief Justice Roberts read the law in that fashion, a tax on going uninsured, it was very easy for him to uphold the core of Obamacare. And that's how come the law survived. All right. So now let's talk about uh, these challenges to Obamacare at, at lower levels. And in particular, we've had this recent case of Texas versus United States. Now, I don't know if maybe you think I'm skipping ahead too far to start there, if maybe we want to go to Judge Vincent or not. But Judge O'Connor is the figure here. It's interesting that your article is apparently cited in the decision. So that's not uh, not too shabby. But here, does any of this revolve around the fact that legislatively, the penalty that is contemplated in Obamacare was reduced in 2017 down to zero dollars, which then makes it less plausible to think of it as a tax, because I don't know of any taxes that are for zero. Right. So let's walk through this one step at a time. Chief Justice Roberts was able to uphold the ACA because the penalty resembled a tax and that it raised revenue. It doesn't anymore. In 2017, Congress enacted the tax cut. This is President Trump's big tax cut. And one of the tax cuts was to reduce the penalty from $700 to $0. When this happened, I thought, wow, Obamacare is no longer constitutional because the penalty is now zero. And I guess Texas agreed with me. And they brought this lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of Obamacare because it can no longer be saved. And here's the key point. Because the penalty is now zero, the chief justice's saving construction no longer holds. 
What are we left with? We're left with the first part of the Roberts opinion, where he finds that the mandate to buy insurance by itself with nothing else is unconstitutional. So at the present moment, we have a mandate to buy insurance. There is no penalty for violating that mandate, but the mandate still exists. And Texas argued that under the chief justice's opinion, uh, that mandate's now unconstitutional. And that's the first big part of the opinion. All right. So now here's here comes the, the next part of the way you've been describing the uh, argument in these articles. The individual mandate is only part of what Obamacare is. Two other major features of it involve guaranteed issue and community rating. And the question is, if the individual mandate effectively falls, do those other two features fall with it? And and I guess what I'd like to know is, uh, if you think so, can you explain explicitly what the connection is between the one thing and the other? Sure. Um In 2012, when the first Obamacare case came to the Supreme Court, the Obama administration argued that if the Supreme Court finds the mandates unconstitutional, it would also have to set aside the declaring constitutional, the guaranteed issue and community rating. Why? Congress found in the statute that the mandate was essential, and that's where they used, essential to the GI uh, CR, that's guaranteed issue community rating. Um, Why is it essential? If people can simply wait to buy insurance until they get sick, it could create what's called a death spiral where only sick people are in the healthcare system and the premiums go up and up and up and up and up. Uh, That way, people have to buy into the system first. So in 2012, the Obama administration said we need the mandate. If we don't have the mandate, you have to kill the guaranteed issue community rating. This was probably a poison pill of sorts because they were telling the Supreme Court, if you strike down the mandate, you also have to strike down the most popular aspects of the law. And the Supreme Court did not swallow that poison pill. So fast forward to 2017, 2018, now the Trump administration has taken the same position. They said if you kill the mandate, you also have to kill the GI and CR. The judge in Texas actually went a step beyond that. He said not only do we have to strike down the GI CR, that the entire statute is now unconstitutional because the mandate is so important to the entire law. This is what's known in law as severability, right? Think of it as like taint, right, or, or, or disease. If you have a limb Let's say you have a foot that is gangrene, right? Um, Sometimes you can just chop off the foot. uh, But if the infection spread, maybe you have to amputate below the knee. Uh, Maybe you have to amputate the entire leg. Or maybe the entire patient's going to die, right? It's not a pleasant way of thinking of it. But how much do you cut off when part of the entity is uh, uh, bad, is diseased, is unconstitutional, as it were? So the minimum is you just chop off the foot, right? If the mandate's bad, you chop off the foot. Uh, Maybe you have to chop off below the knee with a guaranteed issue community rating. Or maybe the entire patient won't make it. Um, That's perhaps one way of thinking about it. Um, I I take more of a middle-of-the-road position. I would probably amputate up to the leg or so, uh, maybe up to the knee. I don't think the entire patient has to go. I think the ACA can survive without the mandate. Uh, But based on Congress's findings in 2012, I don't think you can keep the GI and CR. If you get rid of the GI and CR, what's left of Obamacare? I'm not asking that to be flippant. I genuinely want to know what what's left. What features remain? Oh, uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of regulations. Oh. Um, everything from payments of subsidies to payments to hospitals to regulations on drug manufacturers to uh, the different types of services insurance companies must provide uh, that your 26-year-old son can say in your policy. Uh, I mean, th- there are more than I can possibly count. Oh, in fact, yeah, I, I forgot. I, you know, I remembered yeah. some of these things at the time of the debate, but then I've, they've all been flushed out of my mind since then. 
Yeah, I mean, Obamacare has woven itself into the fabric of our polity in ways that most people don't even understand. Um, the GI and CR are perhaps most popular, uh, but it's only a small component. Um, and indeed, one, one point that's worth stressing, most states have a guaranteed issue policy on their books. So even if Obamacare's federal mandate died, in most states, people would not even notice the difference, that insurance companies couldn't discriminate against them. So this might be one area where the states could actually pick up the slack fairly quickly if the federal policy was invalidated. One of the questions you ask in uh, one of these articles, you've you've, uh, arranged one of the articles you sent me in the form of a series of questions regarding Judge O'Connor's opinion and some common criticisms. One question is, if the individual mandate has a $0 penalty, then that's not really a mandate at all. So what really is there left to challenge? And you've got some answers to this, but I don't remember if I read, it seems to me that, okay, if Congress legislatively says the individual mandate is now zero, don't they still have the authority under Obamacare if they wanted to, to raise it to $1,000 tomorrow? Or have they really taken that option away from themselves? Yeah, uh, Tom, you asked the question quite well. Um, Tomorrow, Congress could pass a statute making the penalty a million dollars or a hundred dollars or one dollar, whatever they want. The the framework, the architecture to enforce the the penalty is still there. But just the bottom line is when you fill out your tax form, the little line says fill in zero dollars instead of fill in seven hundred dollars. But the more difficult question is how can a command, a legal command with no consequence for violating it still be a legal command? Um, And this is a counterintuitive position. Most people simply assume that if the government can't enforce the law, then I don't have to do it. And that is probably true for most people, most libertarians for sure. Uh, But there are some people, uh, virtuous ones they are, who believe that a command to buy insurance is a command and that they'll buy insurance because of it. Now, you may say, Josh, you're being naive. You're being stupid. This is not realistic. The federal government's estimated Right, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, they they've estimated that there are at least some people, not a lot, but there's some people who will still buy insurance with a mandate and no penalty. That number is small, and I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but it's a small number, but it's not zero. So there are at least some people for whom a legal command still has some sort of moral compulsion, and that is what a, a command is. It's saying you have to do this, and this is what the plaintiffs in the Texas case are challenging. So. Where do things stand as of this moment with Obamacare? I mean, does is there going to be another Supreme Court case about it? Or what's the exact status of the various provisions? In December, a, the federal judge in Dallas, or actually in Fort Worth, um, declared that the individual mandate was unconstitutional. And therefore, he declared that the rest of the law has to go. This is where the gangrene kills the patient, so to speak. That decision did not result in a nationwide injunction, which I'm sure you're familiar with. The judge said, let's just put this on hold, and he let the appellate court consider the issue before issuing any sort of remedy. Uh, The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, based in New Orleans, will probably hear the case uh, at some point this uh, next two months or so, if I had to guess, and we'll probably get a decision maybe by the summertime. If this gets to the Supreme Court, it'll probably get there by the end of 2019 uh, with a decision in June of 2020. Uh, right in time for the next presidential election. What do you make of the criticism that this is just a political decision that yields the outcome that the judge wants? It seems rather rich to have that accusation coming from these particular people, uh, given that that's what they've been doing their entire careers. Well, let me make the point a little, a little bit differently. 
I blame John Roberts for this. Uh, he created this very bizarre opinion where the mandate is only constitutional so long as the penalty raises revenue. Sort of like Schrodinger's mandate, right? Where it's both constitutional and un- unconstitutional at the same time. That's 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 not law. I can criticize that opinion for years, but this is not law. Texas, I think, is merely taking the chief justice's task. Okay, you said it. Do you really mean this? Judge O'Connor's decision in Dallas, I'm sorry, in Fort Worth, um, I think is a faithful attempt to apply the Roberts opinion. It's not a good opinion, John Roberts wrote, but the district court's trying to faithfully apply it. Um, this is far less audacious than some of the insane rulings we've seen in the last couple of years where judges can manufacture constitutional rights of whole cloth. Here you have a judge actually trying to follow through in a position taken by U.S. Supreme Court justice. I, you know, I don't agree with all of it, but I think it's in the realm of, of, uh, of normal discourse. I didn't know until I read in your piece, uh, in fact, I'm just going to read exactly from your piece, Recent reporting about the case suggests that Chief Justice Roberts was willing to set aside the mandate as well as the GI and CR, but could not persuade Justice Kennedy. Uh, Well, that's interesting. Uh, What do you make of that? I mean, first of all, what difference does it make if he can persuade Justice Kennedy? Shouldn't he write the decision that he thinks is correct? What am I not getting about this? The Chief Justice has some sort of a unique role. He sees himself as the arbiter of the Supreme Court's independence. And time and again, he has made decisions that go against his better judgment because he thinks his decision will play out poorly in the public arena. Back in 2012, apparently, he wanted to only set aside the mandate, but not the GI and CR, the sort of decision that would make no one happy, right? And usually, Justice Kennedy was a swing vote. He would go along with these sorts of -of middle-of-the-road approaches. But for one reason or the other, he wouldn't do that. So instead, John Roberts tried a different compromise where he secured the votes of Justice Kagan and Breyer, where he said, okay, we will set aside part of the law's Medicaid expansion, uh, which gives states more money to give insurance to poor and sick people, but instead we'll uphold the mandate as a tax, right? I I have come to terms with the Roberts opinion. I think he firmly believed that this was the the best way of reading the statute, Um, but the idea of a justice horse trading, like he's a auctioneer or a used car salesman, right? I'll give you this if you go in this. I'll throw in the spoiler if you give me this, right? It, it, it's very unseemly. And if John Roberts thinks that these sorts of decisions keep the courts out of the political fray, he has it exactly backwards. It, it is political, right? He's avoiding decisions that he thinks will, will become unpopular in the, in, the, in, the, in the common discourse. And that's not what, what a judge is to do. And indeed, it backfires, right? If he was trying to keep the court out of politics, he did. He dragged it through the mud. He dragged it through the proverbial swamp. And my only hope is that, you know, the chief doesn't do this again, but he he probably will. And I also hope he doesn't drag Justice Kavanaugh down there, and I think he probably will. Folks, let me take a quick break to make, in a way, almost a correction, because I've been telling you a lot about Skillshare, which is this service where you get 25,000 classes with just one membership, and it helps you to build up a side hustle or a business, a skill you can use to provide services to people or to make yourself a more attractive employee. But you can also use it if you have hobbies that you like to pursue, because it can really help you improve your skills. So for instance, my daughter Regina is a writer, so she's taking a class on character development. And another daughter, Veronica, is an artist, so she's taking particular classes on particular techniques in art. 
and she can take them on her phone, on her computer, anywhere she wants to, at any time she wants. It's an absolutely amazing service, and you can join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for free. That's right, Skillshare is offering Tom Wood Show listeners two months of unlimited access to over 25,000 classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash WoodsFree. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash WoodsFree to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash WoodsFree. Let me ask you the same question I asked uh, Ethan Blevins not long ago. As an observer of all these sorts of things, do you have a particular favorite or favorites in the event, let's say, something should happen? with the Supreme Court, and there should be uh, another opportunity to nominate somebody. Do you have a favorite? Um, you know, libertarians in particular should look at Judge Don Willett, who is a federal judge. That's what judge. Ethan said. Good. Same same answer. We're on the same page. He's a federal judge in Austin. He's an appellate judge. Uh, he was in the Texas Supreme Court for a number of years. He was a runner-up for the uh, Scalia seat a couple years ago, so I think he was in the mix. Um, I don't know what the president's thinking now, but I think we'd all be better off with uh, Don Willett in the Supreme Court. You know, your book, uh, I, I don't remember which one, maybe both of them got the same kind of response, but it must be to some degree rather satisfying to write a book on a contentious legal topic and have people on both sides of the question say, this guy's really done a tremendous job. He's even-handed. He gives the arguments of both sides in ways uh, that caricature neither one, and everybody can get some value out of it. I mean, on the other hand, it's also fun to write a scathing polemic, too, but when I looked at that, I thought, well, good for this guy. Well, I appreciate it. Um, I try I try very hard. I don't always succeed, but I try very hard to write in a neutral, even-handed manner. Um, I'm not writing for the current debates. I'm writing for the history books. And when and in 5, 10, 15 years later, people want to know about the history of Obamacare, uh, I want them to read my book. And indeed— it's already happening. Uh, uh, Judge O'Connor cited my book in his opinion to discuss the history of the ACA. And that was only not even 10 years ago. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to write with a much longer term vision rather than bobbing and weaving with whatever the politics that they are. I was just talking to somebody the other night. We were talking about the Federalist Society. And we were saying that, of course, the law schools in general – I, I, you know, I don't want to implicate you in anything I might say that's crazy, but I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm on target when I say that if it weren't for the Federalist Society, it would be much more difficult to find dissenting voices in the law schools, to, to find originalist perspectives. And it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the Federalist Society has basically single-handedly kept alive the originalist perspective. Do, do you think I'm going too far? You know, I think I think there are a lot of a lot of people who uh, uh, played an important role. I give Justice Scalia, who passed away a couple of years ago, a lot of the credit. Uh, but I think what the Federal Society does best is it creates discourse on the campuses where there are not originalist law professors. I speak at probably forty to fifty law schools a year across the country, and very often when I speak, the students have never heard what I'm saying before. And you think, oh, you have you know YouTube and Twitter. Yes, they can go watch a lecture online, but there's a difference when someone's in your in your classroom and you can come up after them, have lunch with them, you know, ask them a question, get a recommendation for a book. Social media cannot supplant that. So as expensive and as time consuming as, as it is, you know, sending these sort of missionaries to campuses to spread the gospel, uh, I, I think is extremely powerful. 
And this is a, a testament to how much society puts on the value of ideas. And I know from having spoken to many Federalist Society chapters that when I would get an invite, they would always tell me, just so you know, we prefer debates. I mean, it's fine for you to come give a lecture. There's nothing wrong with that. But if there's some way we can arrange for a debate, that would be even better. And it's, you know, again, let's be honest, that that, that impulse to have an open debate is coming from our side. It's coming from our side almost exclusively. And in fact, there's a, I better not say what it is. I'll tell you when we're done. But there's a libertarian outfit that is loaded with money. And they have scholarly colloquia all the time where you go away for a weekend, they pay you to read some interesting book, and then you discuss it with 15 scholars at a beautiful hotel. And it's unbelievable. It's a wonderful thing. But they've started bringing in people on the left or middle or whatever to be part of the discussion. Now, there's nothing in principle wrong with that. But my point is, I don't know of any giant left-wing foundation that says, you know, let's reach out to those libertarians. We, we really need to hear from them to be part of our colloquium. It's just not just not happening. So that is very much to the credit of those Federalist Society folks that they want to have debates. It's really true. Um, there's no other organization that has such a strong focus on debates and ideas. And they don't tell me what to say. Uh, the way it works is pretty straightforward. I submit a list of topics that I want to speak about. I've had all of them approved and students then invite me and say, hey, can you talk about this topic or that topic? It even happens if a student says, hey, there's this new thing. Can you talk about it? I'm like, yeah, I can do that. I'll make something up. I'll write a new lecture. I'll, I'll write a new talk. And if there's a professor willing to debate me, I'll debate them. The truth is, more often than not, it's the local professor who refuses to debate. Right. That's, the, that's a hangup. It's not the yeah. federal side. It's the other guy. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And, and what is often the case is that we know their position inside and out. We, we know it. We learned it in school. But they really don't know our position that well. They know it's sort of in caricature or they've heard it laughed about. But a lot of times they haven't really studied in a lot of detail. And so if I were in that position, I wouldn't really want to go one-to-one uh, -one on somebody. Now, I was telling you before we went on that how impressed I was looking at your publication record. Uh, because you've not only have you published so much, but you've published on such a broad array of topics. So given that you know, one way or another, Obamacare, there's going to be some legal equilibrium reached with it at some point. Uh, where is your uh, scholarly work going in the future? Um, I wish I had a good answer. Invariably, my scholarship follows whatever's going on in the world. Uh, during the Obama presidency, I did a lot of stuff on administrative law and executive action. Uh, I have a feeling in the next couple of years, my scholarship will trend towards executive power and congressional oversight. I have a, a blessed job where I can write about things that I, I like and usually things that I'm interested in reflect what's going on in the world around me. Uh, but there's some staples. I, I do plan to write another book on Obamacare. Randy Barnett and I, who's a professor at Georgetown, we have a, we have a book coming out later this year called An Introduction to Constitutional Law, 100 Supreme Court Cases Everyone Should Know. And it's an overview of, of the canon, the top 100 Supreme Court cases. And this is a book designed for law students, college students, high school students, homeschool students. It's self-contained and it's a very easy read. And the book will come out with a video series where maybe short five to eight minute videos about each case in the book. So you can basically binge watch con law. And we've incorporated audio from the Supreme Court when the justices ask questions and they deliver their opinions. It's pretty powerful stuff. Uh, so I'm very excited about all these projects. Do law schools have tenure for professors? 
They do, yeah. Okay, I, for some reason I wasn't sure about that. You're an awfully young guy. Are you tenured? Uh, you know, I was tenured uh, last uh, March of 2018, so just a little bit under a year ago. Has that changed any aspect of the way you think, teach, or write? Not even the least. I did everything you're not supposed to, and I was outspoken before I was even hired as a law professor. Uh, and I've not modified my persona in the least bit since uh, since I got tenure. Okay, uh, listen, I can't let you go without elaborating on that a bit because <laughs> that is a very interesting tidbit about your life because so often young scholars are given, more, as you know, more or less given the opposite advice. Keep your head down, shut up, wait till you have tenure, then, then. But the thing is that if you get in the habit of constantly keeping your head down and never saying anything, by the time you get tenure, either you will have already gone over to the other side or your spirit will be so crushed there'll be nothing left of you by then. Yeah, you know, there's an expression that courage is a muscle. Um, You can't build it up overnight. And I decided early on that to suppress yourself and keep yourself quiet for however many years, six or seven years, till you get tenure, that becomes who you are. You become that meek person and everyone knows who's that meek person and then you can't break out of that mold. Um, You know, I burst out the scene while I was still even a law clerk. I didn't even, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't finish uh, my, my clerkship. I started blogging and tweeting and I developed a, you know, a national brand. And had I kept my head down, I don't think I'd be where I am today. And I'm, I'm grateful I chose the path I did. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope people will check out your website where they can read your blog posts. They can look at your list of publications and, and read some of them. The website is joshblackman.com. That's Blackman, B-L-A-C-K-M-A-N, joshblackman.com. So I'll link to that website on our show notes page, which is where I'll also link to the articles that we talked about today, uh, tomwoods.com slash 1336. And Josh, thanks so much for your time and uh, look forward to reading more from you. Thank you so much, Tom. All right, folks, that's it for today. Remember, you got to come on board the Contra Cruise with us. It's so much fun. <laughs> it's so much fun. If you get to talk to people who have gone on it, they're basically going to force you on board because it's just that good. It's one of those things you don't realize how much fun it is till you're on it and you say, yeah, I'm glad I did this. So Naomi Brockwell, who's been a guest on the show a couple of times, says it's the best event she's ever been to. An absolute blast. Could you imagine spending a week with Bob Murphy and me and Gene Epstein and the Burzers and all the good folks who join us on the Contra Cruise can you imagine that? Tatiana Morose will be coming back. We got our band. Uh, it's going to be tremendous. Can you imagine that not being awesome? Alaska, we're just going to have an amazing, amazing time. But the bonuses we give away to folks who sign up early, they are dwindling. So you got to grab uh, your spot, go reserve your cabin over at contracruise.com. We are going to have just the time, you're just going to have the time of your life. It's going to be amazing. So I look forward to seeing you there, and I will talk to you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.